1: Welcome, everyone, to a brand new episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thanks for sticking around and staying subscribed. I am really pleased to have Larry Millett with me. He is a Minneapolis native, a writer, a reporter, and an editor for the St. Paul Pioneer Press for many years, and the paper's first architecture critic. He and Don Boxmeyer were clue writers for many years for St. Paul's annual Winter Carnival Medallion Hunt. He has also written 12 works of nonfiction and 9 mystery novels. And his book, Lost Twin Cities, for anyone listening who loves Twin Cities history, is an absolute must. Uh, it's been on my shelf for years and years. A constant reference tool for me. And if you are Minnesotan, but for some reason you don't have it yet on your coffee table, uh, you should at least be familiar with Lost Twin Cities on TPT, Twin Cities PBS, where it has become a long-running documentary series. So great to have you on the show.
0: Yeah, good to be with you.
1: So do you remember when your love for Twin Cities history began?
0: Well, um... I was always kind of interested in it. Uh, My father's family had been in Minneapolis for a long time. Uh, My grandfather, long gone, owned a saloon on Washington Avenue. And um, the family was, on my father's side at least, was here in the Twin Cities area pretty early on. So uh, my father was kind of interested in it. Uh, I was interested in it. I went to school at high school at De La Salle in downtown Minneapolis and got to see a lot of the making and unmaking of Minneapolis history during the um, Gateway Renewal Project. So it was something I had an interest in, but it was, it took a while for me to really, it was later in life when I uh, sort of moved into writing about uh, the Twin Cities history. Uh, Lost Twin Cities came out in 1992 when I was, uh, I don't know, in my 40s. So It took me a while to get around to it, but I did, and uh, I've had a lot of fun writing about uh, local history and architecture as well as other things uh, since then.
1: That's great, yeah. So we talk about true crime mostly on this show, and you've written about true crime cases in a couple of your books. But when you asked me which of your books I'd like to focus on today, I told you Metropolitan Dreams, The Scandalous Rise and Stunning Fall of a Minneapolis... Masterpiece, and in my mind, it's a crime book—a a crime against history, really.
0: Yeah, you could say that. It's uh, it's it's a book about a particular building, but uh, the people associated with that building, uh, including the the man most responsible for seeing it built, uh, Louis Minaj, was uh, <laughs> an interesting character, and I think we would regard him today as um, uh, a white collar criminal uh, of a high degree. Um, and so a lot of the book is devoted to his financial uh, shenanigans, as well as what happened to the building over time.
1: So would you tell us about him, uh, his Minneapolis empire, and how he came to finance the Guarantee Building?
0: Well, he um, he was from the East Coast and came to Minnesota at a fairly young age, in his 20s, worked uh, as an accountant in some Uh, lumber camps, and then um, kind of settled into Minneapolis and became a real estate broker initially. Uh, He was obviously very good with money. And uh, so he formed a company in the 1880s called the Northwestern Guarantee Loan Company. And it was kind of a catch-all, as far as I can determine, financial services company. Uh, They handled mortgages. They did a lot of loans, a lot of what was called commercial paper at the time, which were basically IOUs that were were signed. And um, he was very successful, or so it appeared. And uh, some years after starting the company, he uh, financed through various means this uh, enormous skyscraper, which would which opened in 1890, uh, originally known as the Northwestern Guarantee Loan Building, which was at Third uh, Street and Second Avenue South in downtown Minneapolis. Twelve-story building with a giant atrium inside, and it was kind of the the ultimate building, the ultimate commercial building of the great 1880s era in Minneapolis. It was the tallest building in the city, the most lavish commercial building in the city, one of the most lavish commercial buildings probably in the country. had a rooftop garden. It had a restaurant on the upper floor, uh, a novelty at the time. Um, A lot of offices uh, that were uh, filled with a variety of firms, including a lot of lawyers. And uh, it appeared to be a very successful business, a very successful building. Uh, Well, lo and behold, the great Financial crash of 1893 occurred, and the Northwestern Guarantee Loan Company quickly went belly up. And um, we can talk about this in, in more detail, but it was soon clear that the company was, I think, essentially a giant Ponzi scheme, <laughs> uh, as as best I can determine. Uh, although it's you know it, it's hard to tell, but. Uh, it seems to have been essentially a a, a giant Ponzi scheme with um, a lot of, uh, shall we say, questionable financial behaviors at its root. And when the financial crash, the the nationwide financial crash of 1893 occurred, as we know, there's a big financial crash. uh, It bleeds quickly into um, the financial sector, and that certainly happened in 1893. But the A guarantee loan company was a a very big company to go under. And Minaj, as as we'll discuss later, um, eventually fled the country (laughs) and uh, uh, traveled, shall we say, extensively for his health, he said, uh, as all of the unwinding of this uh, company was going on.
1: Right, right. Would you describe the style? It was built in sure. the materials that were used.
0: It was uh, in a style that's often called Romanesque revival, or sometimes Richardsonian Romanesque. Uh, the building consisted of uh, massive solid walls of New Hampshire granite, the full 12 stories, um, and with arches and various, and it was kind of a rough cut granite look. So it was a, a, a sort of a rough hewn looking building, very powerful stonework uh, of a kind that no one builds anymore. Uh, solid solid bearing stones on all the outside walls. All four walls were, uh, all four sides were given the full treatment, which was rare in the day. Usually buildings would, you know, if they faced the street, they'd they'd put a nice little front on it, uh, and then behind it would be just plain brick. But this building, uh, Minaj, we spent, uh, I've seen so many different estimates of it, I don't even want to guess how much it cost, but certainly over a million dollars, and that was a lot of money in those days. And, but then inside was just the opposite. It was incredibly light and airy, had a, um, a light court that extended up through the whole height of the building or, or, or an atrium, one of the largest probably in the country at a time, and glass floors, um, glass doors on all the offices, gorgeous ironwork for the railings and other parts of the building, uh, six elevators, uh, which was unheard of in a building at that time uh, usually they might have two but they had six elevators all hydraulic uh, open cage type of elevators and uh, it was the great commercial building of the Twin Cities for sure uh, in the Victorian era uh, it was everyone knew that this was really something special of course when it was uh, destroyed in 1962 there was much much sadness uh, over Destruction of a building that, in fact, as my book makes clear, did not have to occur. But, but that's another story. But yes, it was uh, it was an exceptional building in every way. If you look on the cover of Lost Twin Cities, you see the Light Court, uh, as I call it. There, um, so it was basically a hollow donut of a building. All the offices were arranged around um, the windows and around galleries that overlooked the central atrium.
1: And it dominated the downtown Minneapolis skyline, right? What little yeah, there was it was, a, the
0: time. it was a I mean the 12 stories was as high as buildings got in the Twin Cities in the 19th century and and in most of America although there were exceptions in places like Chicago and New York where they went higher uh, but it was um, one of the tallest buildings probably that they like to always advertise it as the tallest building west of the Mississippi and I, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not but it was certainly one of the significant office buildings built in the United States. Uh, at that time, uh, in a lot of respects, uh, very lavish, very nicely appointed. And yes, it did indeed, if you look at old pictures of the Minneapolis skyline from really up to the early 20th century, it's it's a a dominant building.
1: Yeah. So the title of chapter five in your book is One of the Most Colossal Swindles of the Decade. By 1890, right? There was talk that Minaj was in trouble, that he had been using the guarantee loan company as a sink.
0: Yeah, there was a, a, a fellow uh, who was kind of a freelance uh, gadfly who was saying that that Menage's practices were suspicious, that the finances of the company were suspicious, uh, so much so that they uh, asked, I think it was a state auditor, to come in and look at the company and this was like in the early 1890s. and He pronounced, oh, everything is fine. And that was not long thereafter that it completely collapsed. Minaj was doing, and his, his minions were doing a lot of interesting things. Um, the collapse, well, one of the things they did is they would, they would buy properties, mortgage them to the hilt, uh, and then sell those mortgages, uh, even though the property hadn't really been improved in any way. So they were kind of building these castles of sand. The other thing they did is they they lent out huge amounts of money to private parties, uh, commercial paper. And a lot of these parties probably didn't even know that their names were on these loans. Uh, There was one janitor who worked in the building uh, who was later found to be responsible or or to have his name on $80,000 worth of loans. And so what they did with these loans, these kind of phony loans, is they they would issue them. They'd have Somebody signed them. I think they might have even had a a sort of signing factory there that they're working on. And then they would quickly go out to the east, particularly to Vermont, where one of the big salesmen was from, and then sell these loans at a discount. And they're mostly things that were supposedly going to be due in in six months. Uh, And they knew that the people on these loans probably had no intention of or any ability to pay them. So uh, once things started uh, coming apart, uh, that scheming became pretty clear. Uh, In many cases, they weren't even able to find a person who was identified as the recipient of the loan. So uh, I think I I said in my book they had a fiction writing factory going on there. So it was was a lot of financial ledger domain. Now, to his dying day, uh, Minaj, like a lot of these financial types, uh said oh no no it wasn't illegal we were just you know we were just uh, kind of on the edge there but but if, if you know hadn't been for this depression everything would have been fine and and you know you can hear that time and time again so he was operating on the very edge and perhaps well beyond the, the legal edge to run this business and it was basically keep on bringing in writing more loans bringing in more cash blah 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 blah. and then when the crash occurs and bills come due suddenly." you see the house of cards that was there all along. And that's what happened, essentially. It happened very quickly to the firm. Uh, eventually Thomas Lawry, who was probably a member of the firm uh, or on the board, uh, took over the, the building and tried to um, wind down the business, which went into bankruptcy and was ultimately dissolved.
1: Yeah, y- using his own employees' names on on these bogus notes was so shady. The, the janitor.
0: Yep. Yep. The janitor and there were others. And as I say, in, in many cases they weren't, weren't even able to find out, um, who the, um, <laughs> who the named party was. Uh, so I think some of these were just made up. They were just basically sending out loans, um, selling those though, that paper uh, to generate money, and then doing more and more of that, um, but then everything came to it. It's it's like most Ponzi schemes. It it, it it's kind of built on uh, infinite hope, you know, that the belief that if you just keep on pushing along, pushing along, pushing along, you know, it'll it'll all just keep on going. But of course, it never does. Um, it just never does. And so he was uh, he was uh, out of money and uh, went uh, traveling in South America and Mexico uh, while the authorities uh, went searching for him (laughs) and never found him somehow. Interesting, uh, interesting. interesting. And he eventually did come back to the Twin Cities. Uh, One of his uh, chief assistants was put on trial uh, and ended up with, I think, two hung juries. Uh, The problem was, if you were a prosecutor in... 1880s Minneapolis, and you had a small office as prosecutors did, they might have one assistant. Trying to deal with uh, a gigantic, complicated fraud case like this was really beyond their means. I mean, think of some of the modern cases, and the FBI has layers of forensic accountants and people to try to sort out what's going on. Nothing like that existed. So it was very difficult in a public setting and with a public prosecutor to try to make sense of cases like this in those days and just to have the resources to really investigate them. So Menage himself never, uh, eventually the charges against him were dropped when he came back. Uh, He was never never sent to jail and eventually sort of just uh, disappeared into a small-scale commercial real estate work uh, in New Jersey and Manhattan and uh, died in obscurity, I think, in 1924, as I remember, sometime around then. Uh, one of the interesting things I discovered when I was writing this book is that he also built quite an elaborate apartment building at um, Portland and A Street South in downtown Minneapolis, which when I started writing the book, and I thought I knew every historic building in downtown Minneapolis, I was amazed that it was still there. <laughs> it still is. It's called the Washburn Apartments now. It's not upscale by any means. But typical of kind of the odd fellow that he was, he he built this apartment building and then built himself within it a, a four-story, 24-room apartment for himself, his wife, and his daughter. And he lived there while all this was going on. And then eventually, uh, once all the uh, bad news uh, occurred, uh, his daughter and wife uh, kind of uh, collected some money and disappeared on their own and apparently hooked up with him back in, in Mexico, which is where he Ended up for a, a number of years. Um, apparently, as a, some sort of merchant, supposedly he sold coffee or traded coffee for a while in Guatemala, and then moved on. And there were various campaigns to try to locate him, but um, he was a slippery fellow, and um, they they couldn't find him. And he finally finally did come back to Minneapolis. I think it was eighteen ninety nine, and proclaimed his innocence and said, "I if you know, you give me a chance, I can I can work this all out." Which of course was was nonsense. Whether he himself realized that he was doing illegal things, sometimes with people like this, you just don't know. I mean, I, I think he might have believed in his own mind that this was all just part of a very elaborate financial dealings that he had, and uh, you know, it was all okay. And if it hadn't been for this darn recession—well, more than recession—it was a great depression in the eighteen nineties. That everything would have been all right.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah, the the scandal was all over the papers but you write that it was pushed off of the front pages by the Harry Hayward, Kitty Ging murder case. Kind tapes. of
0: eclipsed it. Yeah, that became uh, much bigger news, much more, you know. Uh, newspapers trying to write about financial scandals and to explain all of everything that went on, especially in those days, except maybe for a paper like the New York Times. You know, they really didn't were not equipped to deal with trying to figure out stuff like that. On the other hand, a good juicy murder uh, for hire uh, with a playboy involved, uh, that, was, that was plenty of meat to chew on for, uh, for a long time.
1: <laughs> right. So why was the building's name changed? How did it become the Metropolitan Building? And what was it used for?
0: Well, it was renamed the, the Metropolitan Ch- Building uh, after an um, insurance company uh, that uh, bought it. And it basically just settled into life as an office building, which is really what it was. Uh, Menage's firm had, I think, one full floor um, that they occupied or maybe a portion of the floor. But otherwise, as built, it was essentially a rental office building. And uh, it continued to do so. Uh, As things happened, it kind of slid down the scale from a, a Class A building to a Class B to a Class C. And uh, then a, a guy named Melvin Hansen bought it, I think, in the 1950s. And he owned a number of other older buildings in downtown Minneapolis. And it was um, kind of perking along as a, a, a nice Class C office building. Uh, you know, needed a little upkeep and all that, but still, you know, going along because it was very well built. And still using the day they tore it down, the six original elevators were still in there and still working. And so uh, then the city of Minneapolis decided that it needed to do the the big gateway renewal project, which was designed to clear away the historic downtown Skid Row along Washington Avenue, which was still there when I was a, started as a student at DLSL. Uh, Old, old buildings from the founding days of the cities, many hundreds of buildings from the 1860s and 1870s, uh, most of them very ordinary brick buildings. Uh, that had fallen on hard times were used as uh, bars and cheap hotels and flop houses and all that sort of thing. in fact, I had an uncle who uh, <laughs> my uncle Willie lived in one of those famous flop houses not long before he died uh, over here in st paul so uh, that was the uh, that was the impetus there was money available from the federal government to to deal with urban blight, however you define that, and no one ever really did very well and so they established boundaries eventually, and ultimately included the Metropolitan Building in the boundaries to be demolished. And um, even though it really started the first big historic preservation campaign in the history of Minneapolis or maybe in Minnesota to save the building, uh, there were no preservation laws in effect like there are today that might have been used to try to save it. Uh, and the city's HRA Acquired the building and, sa- and put their offices in there while they were overseeing the destruction of the historic gateway and just absolutely fought tooth and nail to tear the building down. And by my estimate, it cost them, with all the uh, acquisition, with the difficulty of, of tearing down the building, they spent somewhere between a million and two million dollars to tear that building down, which was an enormous amount of money. And, uh, you know, Uh, Away it went. Uh, Had it survived another 10 years, uh, by the time the Preservation Acts of 1966 was passed and the historic preservation movement started, it would have been preserved and gloriously restored and probably still be an office building or apartments to this day but uh that did not uh, that did not happen and uh, so it's an interesting story because you have and this is not the first time in history <laughs> that such things have happened. you have a magnificent building basically built by a scoundrel and and that's been there's been plenty of magnificent buildings built by scoundrels, whether they're kings or or business tycoons uh, over the years. And, and this was kind of the Minneapolis version of the scoundrel masterpiece, I suppose you could call it.
1: <laughs> we will be back after these brief messages.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
1: No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free. at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we have returned. There was a sense, right, by many in that era, that anything old was ugly.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think the primary reason that it was taken down was it was considered aesthetically unappealing. They were, you know, uh, putting in or trying to put in a bunch of new buildings in that area, although the Metropolitan Buildings wasn't replaced on that site till 1980 uh, by a very, very uninspiring <laughs> building, to put it mildly. Uh, and so they felt that these buildings were were simply you know it it was it was old and ugly it didn't it didn't appeal to their idea. Minneapolis was desperate to sort of shed the 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 look of its downtown. They were worried about the- the suburbs and general mills had just moved out to its headquarters in golden Valley and then downtown was leaders were very worried that the the downtown was was dying as as we now hear kind of similar talk today although it's. Not, not true, but, but downtown was struggling uh, with, the, with the huge growth of the suburbs and the automobile and everything else, and uh, they wanted to put in modern buildings. Uh, the fact of the matter is, with the exception of the old Northwestern National Life Building, the Parthenon there on Washington and um, Hennepin, that's a Minoru-Yamasaki building, uh, the new stuff was basically awful and of very low quality. Compared to the old buildings, and certainly the Metropolitan Building was of greater quality than any of those. I mean, they even the city even uh, they had engineers come out to look at the building, and, and they were like, sort of, well, what do we do with this building? It has it has solid stone walls. I mean, is that even you know reliable? Can we rely on that? You know, it's like, well, people relied on that for centuries uh, as a way to build buildings, and of course, it was all framed in iron, essentially inside. Uh, it was it was. A modern frame skyscraper, except it had, uh, as was common at that time before the full skyscraper style was developed, it, it didn't have a curtain wall It had, a, or just a wall hung on the frame. It had solid stone walls. So it, it would have lasted forever, I mean, it, you know, uh, with, with right amount of maintenance. Uh, and it was a functioning, uh, fairly well-occupied building uh, when they the HRA bought it, uh, vacated it. People came from all around the country to see it. There are, are old videos that architects took of inside the building. Uh, photographers from all over came to photograph it. I went with my dad when I was about 14 to see it uh, last time. And then they, they tore it down, and it was difficult to tear down. The company that tore it down went bankrupt, uh, but they finally got it down, and then the vacant lot stood there for, for almost 20 years. Uh, before somebody finally got around to to putting a building on the site. Not one of the the happy stories in the history of Minneapolis all the way around.
1: (laughs) Do you remember being moved, feeling emotion when it was destroyed?
0: Well, I was 14 years old and I was probably being emotionally moved by other things at that (laughs) <laughs> at that point in my life. But um, uh, I think my dad was. He worked at the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, which is just a couple blocks away, and I know he was very familiar with the building going back because he grew up in, on the north, near north side of Minneapolis and would have probably been in the building many more times than I did. I don't recall what he said about it. Uh, he wasn't an architectural student or critic or anything like that. But I was aware, even though I was quite young, of, of what was going on with the uh, attempts to preserve the building, to save it. And later on, as I learned more about the building and uh, its architect, a guy named E. Townsend Mix from uh, Milwaukee, uh, who later relocated Minneapolis, and this was kind of his last great building. In fact, he died before it was completed. As so the I learned about it and the story behind it, 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 it just, yeah, it, it is sad. It, it's sad to think about what happened, but uh, every city, uh, every American city for sure, has stories like this you go to Chicago, uh, one of my favorite architects, Louis Sullivan, uh, Chicago basically tore down pretty much every Sullivan building there was. There's a few that are left, a few big ones, but um, they tore down many, many buildings by a great architect and other cities have done the same thing. So it's not an unusual thing, but uh, it's sad because this is really the one that you would like to have kept. Uh, And I would like to have kept in St. Paul, the Ryan Hotel, which came down the same year in 1962. Uh, they were probably the two great 19th century monuments in those downtowns, and, and both are now long gone.
1: Yeah. So were any parts of the building recycled, saved?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. They, uh, they uh, as, as they did in those days, they would, and still do, with um, buildings being demolished. If there's something there they think they can sell of value, they will. They'll strip it. And so uh, I have one, two, three pieces of the ironwork that were um, formed for either the elevator grills or the railings in the building. Uh, all of that stuff was removed and sold. And you can find pieces of ironwork from the building all around the upper Midwest and probably elsewhere. Uh, I see pieces for sale occasionally at architectural salvage stores and things like light fixtures. Um Doorways, anything that could be salvaged was salvaged, and so a lot of it are pieces. All the ironwork was made um, made locally in, in Minneapolis for the building, and so it's um, uh, it's it survives in pieces, shall we say, more so than than most buildings I think of that era do, because there were a lot of other pretty big buildings that were of that era that have since been destroyed in in downtown Minneapolis and downtown Saint Paul and. I don't know if those other buildings nearly as much was saved. But the Metropolitan was so, uh, so publicized, the, the, the story of its creation and its demolition so well known that it, uh, a lot of people were on board to try to purchase items that were salvaged when the building was demolished.
1: How about the rubble? Where, where was that dumped?
0: Well, the, the stonework, the, the granite, it's a mixture of granite and sandstone. And the, and the granite was kept in uh, the New Hampshire granite, which is on the lower floors, was actually carted out to a stone yard in um, Delano, uh, Minnesota, and stood there for many, many years. Uh, when I did the Lost Twin Cities video, Whenever that was, we were out at that stoneyard. I was sitting on kind of the piles of the building. That stone has since been redistributed. There's some of it around the Twin Cities. Uh, sculptors bought it. Uh, the Ice House down on Nicollet Avenue, Minneapolis, has a little plaza with some of it, and there are other bits and pieces of that stonework around. There was a thought of trying to reconstruct one of the arched entryways to the building, which was framed in granite, but also used the sandstone, which was much softer and easier to carve. So some of that was saved, uh, but after that, the people bought the stone yard. They wanted that granite to, re- to recycle it, basically use it for crushed granite, and that's what happened to the blocks that didn't have, for example, any ornamental features or whatever. They were pretty much ground up. So the, the building is, is exterior. Bits and pieces of that survive as well, um, but it's it's basically gone. Yeah. It's been recycled, shall we say. One
1: of the the buildings that just broke my heart when it was torn down. And this wasn't that long ago. It uh, was ogaras in St. Paul.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it had yeah.
1: cultural significance. It was the childhood home of, of Peanuts creator, Charles Schultz.
0: Yep. Yeah. No, there's, you know, you find um, you find all around uh, uh, buildings uh, of, of great significance that are gone. I, I maintain... A database of lost twin Cities buildings, which much of which I've now donated uh, copies of to the Hennepin County Library System and the Ramsey county or the Ramsey County Historical Society. If you're ever interested, you can find those through those organizations. and I have probably this is just the two downtowns, I'm sure at least two thousand buildings that are in that database, many of which are are obscure and uh, of no great note, but uh, a lot of, um, you know, sort of the whole 19th century of downtown Minneapolis and downtown St. Paul, uh, a great percentage of it, what uh, architecture from that era has been has been destroyed as the downtowns have uh, remade themselves over the years.
1: Were any of the buildings that were burned down during the Minneapolis protests slash riots a few years ago, were, were any of them historically Significant?
0: Uh, I don't think so. Um, nothing of great significance. Uh, I know that I think the Coliseum building on Lake Street was damaged, but I think that's been uh, being repaired. That would have probably been the most noteworthy um, of the buildings. A lot of smaller commercial buildings and some of them, you know, newer um, that were uh, lost. By and large, now because of the preservation guidelines we have in effect. It's harder to tear down historic buildings, but it's not impossible. We just a few years back, um, wonderful old church in St. Paul, um, whose name is now escaping me in the Coma Park neighborhood. St. Andrews was bought by a, a school, a charter school and and they wanted to tear it down and um, there was a fight over that, but it was not a designated building by the city, even though it should have been um, and it was torn down. Very nice church by a guy named Charles Hostler, who was a very distinguished St. Paul architect. Uh, and we just saw recently the, the, uh, little Ramsey cottage in St. Paul, a little stone cottage from the 1850s that was, uh, damaged and has now been moved off its site off of West 7th Street, which is where I live, uh, in that neighborhood. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's much harder. I mean, it, it, today, if you, let's say the Metropolitan Building had survived, uh, 1980, uh, whatever. And somebody came along and said, well, we need to tear this down and put up a new skyscraper or whatever. Um, by then, it probably would have been designated by the city. And, and it's not to say it's impossible. It could have been torn down, but it would have been much, much more difficult to do so. Ultimately, the the destruction of Metropolitan Building was the, the ultimate go-ahead for it was given by the Minnesota Supreme Court, uh, which wasn't particularly sympathetic to historic preservation at the time. And um, when I went to find that old court file at the um, or the uh, Minnesota Historical Society, I found a wonderful collection of photographs of the building that had been taken just before it was demolished that I had never seen before. I don't think hardly anyone had seen before. And they were just kind of stuffed in that file. And I used some of those in the book. Uh, they were by professional photographers and, and really gave a, a wonderful picture of of how intact, how amazingly intact the building was um, in 1961, and 62 when it was torn down. I mean, it pretty much had not changed a lot. The fact that the original <laughs> elevators were still running had it originally had its own dynamo in the basement for its own direct current electricity, and that was a. I don't think the building was hooked up to the the power grid until the 1930s. So it, it was. It was like it was a museum, uh, uh, but very well kept. And like I say, there was really no reason that it had to be torn down. But things happen uh, in cities, and uh, it happened to that building.
1: Do you, do you have a favorite historical house or building in Minneapolis or, or St. Paul that gives you uh, comfort when you walk inside that, that you're especially glad still exists?
0: Um. Oh, I don't know uh, if there's a single building that would, would fall into that category. I mean, in St. Paul, for example, in Minneapolis, particularly in St. Paul, you still have a ton of historic houses and mansions on the Summit University area. Downtown, of course, um, certainly Landmark Center, the Public Library. St. Paul City Hall, which is a great art deco building, are all buildings that are really important. And, of course, in Minneapolis, you know, the, the City Hall building. Which is in that same style, uh, Romanesque style, even more so than the Metropolitan Building is. Is the one building that might kind of call to mind what the Metropolitan Building was like, because the Minneapolis City Hall is also uh, solid blocks of stone uh, on the outside that were, you know, carted here from Mortonville Minnesota, and uh, that's kind of the building that gives me a sense um, of, of what the Metropolitan Building would have been like, even though. Um, City Hall has its own <laughs> its own issues today, which I won't get into, but uh, so about there, there are lots of buildings around that um, you know we still have from our historic days uh, you have to remember that minneapolis and st paul their their glory decade for downtown in terms of, of building was the 1880s uh, that's when the cities really became went from being kind of small little urban uh, communities to you know, to, to form the the heart of a major metropolis, and that really happened in the 1880s.
1: What What are your thoughts on the the West Publishing Building uh, that that was torn down recently?
0: Uh, well, um, you know, that's that was kind of a, a collection of buildings which had been modified uh, in the 50s with that metal facade that was put on. They were just pretty standard brick buildings. Uh, that site had had other buildings before. And I wasn't terribly put out by the loss of the West Building or of the county jail that was next to it. Uh, The question, of course, is going to be whether St. Paul can find a way to develop that very fascinating site. Uh, If they can, I think it'll be a huge boost to the downtown if they can find a way to create an apartment dash commercial complex along there, develop that river balcony idea they have in mind. Um, you know, because you're talking about a 40 or 50 foot cliff that goes right up from the river, and the building would kind of tumble down there, and it would be really interesting if they could if they could pull it off. I just I don't know I don't know when when I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime, but I could be wrong. One never knows. I just gave a talk to a group on the future of downtown St. Paul, and I said made my little predictions, but the one thing I said is that cities are very hard places to to forecast because they're always full of surprises. They're you know, very complex human creations. And um, it, you just predict things are going to happen in a certain way, and, and often not they don't. they are always surprises. A new immigrant group moves in. Uh, there's some major economic change that shifts building types. Um, on and on it goes. There are just so many things you can't predict about what's going to happen in cities, and I don't pretend to know what's going to happen in downtown St. Paul. Uh, but hopefully something. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, and downtown St. Paul is, you know, it, it's kind of our, I call it the satellite downtown. I mean, downtown Minneapolis is clearly the the centerpiece of, of the Twin Cities. Uh, it's the focal point in a way that downtown St. Paul is kind of, you know, this sort of little satellite downtown that's um, small, but it, it occupies beautiful ground. I mean, it's some of the most beautiful ground in the Twin Cities if you just walk along Kellogg Mall Park and take in the whole sweep of the river, you actually see the Mississippi starting its way south to the Gulf of Mexico. It's, it's pretty spectacular, but it, it's, hard to, it, it's been hard for downtown St. Paul to, to uh, grow and develop given the shadow of, of Minneapolis much larger downtown.
1: Yeah, for sure. So another one of your books that, that's really popular is called Strange Days, Dangerous Nights photos from the speed graphic era. Would you explain the concept of that book and how you were able to acquire those incredible photographs?
0: Uh, yeah, it's actually of all my many books. Uh, it's my personal favorite. I don't know if it's the best book, but it's my favorite because it, I spent 30 years as a newspaper reporter, and so that is kind of in my blood. But um, what I did was back in the day, uh, This, well, I think that book came out in the early 2000s, Um, I was still working at the Pioneer Press, and I used to go up to their library, which the newspapers call the morgue, where they had these big flipping files and whatnot. And they had this huge, gigantic collection of photographs, probably several hundred thousand taken over many years, uh, but very rich in pictures from the 40s and 50s. And um, I started looking through those pictures, and I said, man, there's just some (laughs) wild and crazy stuff in here, because um, they had access, photographers had much more access to crime scenes going back to the 20s 30s and on into the 50s than they do today a and B they all worked with a large format camera uh, the speed graphic uh, took four by five images and so the paper when they brought them back and took these wonderful pictures they would often develop them in very large formats eight by 10 10 by 13 you know very big beautiful and they had their own their own black room they did their own prints and the prints the black and white prints were you know, just gorgeous, because uh, they had some great photographers working for them. And I started looking at all these pictures, and I was kind of wondering, well, they're, they're great pictures. We got crime scenes, we got crazy winter carnival stuff, we got accidents, we got uh, just odd events from daily life, all you know, taken by uh, excellent photographers using excellent equipment, beautiful images, many of them very rich and, and taken in deep focus. But I didn't know exactly, you know, how do I organize this stuff. And at some point, I don't know exactly when that happened. The idea of I'm looking at all these dangerous night photographs of of crimes and accidents and everything else, and I'm seeing all kind of this weird stuff going on in the light of day. So I finally came up with the title Strange Days, Dangerous Nights. And that's kind of pretty much a case. I'm a big believer in the value of titles as describing a book, and that really does describe the book. So it's kind of a look at, what St. Paul looked like, mostly St. Paul, a little bit of Minneapolis and a little bit of outstate Minnesota or Wisconsin, looked like in the 19, primarily the 1940s and 50s. And that's where most of the photographs are from. And so there's a, you know, picture right on the cover of a dead guy lying in a bar who'd just been shot. And, uh, you know, the police are there interviewing, the, uh, interviewing the, the, uh, the people who are in the bar. and And the photographer was, you know, just right there come on in and take a picture of the body and okay. And of course now no one has access like that to crime scenes anymore for, for good reason. But, um, that was the way they did things. Uh, it's kind of the Ouija era of, um, crime photography and that, uh, speed graphic camera had a big, huge flash bulb. And so it gave kind of a particular glaring light to a lot of these images. You know, you think of film noir. Well, this was kind of the film noir of the, of the newspaper era and uh so it was a just a tremendously fun book to do uh i spent a long time going through pictures after pictures eventually probably took out a, a thousand of them because i had easy access and then whittled it down to the ones that eventually ended up in the book and you could do a a similar book the minneapolis uh, the star tribune still has um, a tremendous photo archives that i don't think anyone has Really plumbed fully, although there are quite a few of their old speed graphic pictures up at the Minnesota Historical Society, but they're in negative format, so they're not particularly readily usable. But if somebody wants to do, you know, strange days, dangerous nights, Minneapolis, <laughs> they can do that one too. <laughs> it's not going to be me, but somebody could. Uh, so yeah, that was it, it. Was it was kind of a that was one of those books where it was really sort of serendipity. You happen to have someone who was interested in doing it who had access to these photographs, which were not really accessible to the general public. Uh, I didn't have to pay to use them, which uh, today would probably be the case. And the paper said, okay, go ahead. And so I just did the book and had a lot of fun doing it and writing little uh, stories to go with each photograph. And I actually talked to some of the, a few of the old line photographers were still around when I did the book, Uh, people like uh, Buzz Magnusson and others and um so i was able to interview some of those guys as well to learn how they how they operated and they were they were all characters of course photographers in general are characters but these old guys were (laughs) they were tough old birds and they they just went out and did their thing and um, they kind of thought of themselves as being in charge of whatever the situation was so they, they got a lot of great pictures
1: back again after this quick break and we have returned for the final time, do, do you have a favorite photo from *Strange Days, Dangerous Nights*?
0: Oh no, I don't think there, there's one. I mean, there, there's a lot of photographs. There's one there that brought back my Catholic uh, childhood. There's a picture of, of two nuns. Picture was just taken at the railroad station and with some new new Mother Superior or something, and a and another nun, and and they were looking at the camera like they were going to eat it up and slap you in the face. <laughs> and I thought, oh boy, that's, that's <laughs> the nuns I remember from grade school. He didn't mess with him. Uh, so I kind of like that one, but there are lots of pictures there that I that I like. It's just So many different kinds of photographs. I mean, there's some beautiful, um, it's not just crime season stuff, there's just some beautiful pictures of, of kids uh, doing things and and families, and uh, it's, it's just uh, really kind of a a portrait of, of kind of what St. Paul looked like back in the, in the 50s for those of us who, uh, I didn't mean, up in St. I wasn't in St. Paul then, but it, uh, it just is a little slice of, of a particular time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, another of your books, Murder Has a Public Face. This was a, a follow up to Strange Days, but it was more focused on a handful of true crime cases. And, and of course, it has a lot of photos.
0: Yeah, and it was it was. And it came out right at the um, right at the height of the, <laughs> the financial disaster of two thousand eight and the book kind of sank like a lead balloon when it came out to this day. I don't think it sold many copies. Um yeah, it was a different kind of a book, uh, and it, it was to take some very well publicized cases from that era from the forties and fifties, I think maybe in the early sixties, where there were lots of photographs, of courtroom scenes and murder scenes and whatnot and then describe those cases. And I also did a little bit of a, I think is maybe one of the best parts of the book, I did a little preliminary essay on sort of the history of crime photography and coverage in the local newspapers and um, included some very early crime scene photographs. Uh, Newspapers didn't really start uh, using photographs until the late 19th century, halftones and that sort of thing. Before then, they were just using woodcuts. But as uh, by the 1890s, we're starting to see Halftone photographs uh, of crime scenes and things like that, and obviously by the later by the 40s and 50s, of course, there was uh, plenty of photography to to record some of these events.
1: Would you mind picking a case from that book and walking us through it? One one especially memorable for you?
0: Well, there was a, a case involving a woman named Laura Miller. Who was accused of shooting her lover. She was from Minneapolis and he was out he was a lawyer out in it was Glenwood, Minnesota, and she went out there and shot him and, uh, and claimed to be pregnant by him. And so it became this very sensational case, of course. Uh, sex and murder, you can't go wrong with those two uh, topics. Uh, this was in 1950. And so I, I did that case, but what, um, and she was ultimately acquitted under kind of unusual circumstance. She became sort of, uh, a figure of, of much admiration or support among other women and kind of in the community at large. Uh, you know, she had claimed she had been done wrong by this fellow and, and, and she really hadn't intended to shoot him. But she was acquitted, and uh, but what's interesting, and then supposedly, according to the information I had at the time, she was pregnant by this fellow who she, she shot, and uh, after she was acquitted, she supposedly uh, left the area and moved to Omaha, Nebraska, and there delivered a child. Uh, since I wrote the book, many years later, uh, I, I was in contact with a couple of people who were descendants uh, of 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 the family, and they're telling me that there's some question as to whether or not she ever had a baby. <laughs> wow. So, and, you know, I'm at the stage where I, I, I can't dig into that, but uh, there might sure. be an interesting uh, story there as to was she actually pregnant? Uh, it doesn't look like it in the pictures, but, of course, if it was early on, you know, you don't know. Um, but I was in contact with someone. This is actually now some years ago, and it was just a couple of emails and wanting to know if I had specific information about this baby being born, and I didn't really. I, I'd only relying on newspaper accounts, I think here back in, in, in Minneapolis, uh, that claimed at least that she had this, this child. Uh, and I don't remember if it was a boy or a girl, but yes, there are apparently people who are in the family, who are saying eh, <laughs> we can't find any record of of this child? So, ah. <laughs> but yeah, it's an interesting case. It was very you know massively publicized. Minneapolis, St. Paul papers all covered it uh, at great length, and there were many pictures of her in courtroom and and uh, with in jail actually with the jail matron, and you know, that was the way things were done in those days. She did jailhouse interviews saying, ah, I didn't do it, I, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so she developed a lot of public sympathy for her, and I think that uh, helped lead to her acquittal.
1: Wow, interesting. So we've given listeners a lot of great reading material here, but we haven't yet talked about your novels, which are really great. Would you tell us how you came up with this amazing premise, Sherlock Holmes comes to Minnesota, at the behest of James J. Hill.
0: Well, um, the the story is, uh, I guess, and uh, that um, back in I think it was 1994, I was working for the Pioneer Press, and at that time, my friend John Camp, whose uh, name, whose um, pen name is John Sanford. Uh, and who is, of course, now an immensely successful new york times number one best selling writer of thrillers, he had just won a big book his first big book contract uh, a few years earlier and was you know on his way to uh, to uh, an international writing celebrity and uh so everyone at the pioneer press was thinking god i wish i could why can't i do that and the problem was most of us weren't as talented as john so um <laughs> but i i uh, i was thinking you know it'd be kind of fun to write an historic novel so 1890 uh, 1994 i decided to do a story on the hundredth anniversary of the hinkley forest fire september 1st 1894 killed over 400 people uh, and i thought oh, it's a very dramatic event and uh, so i went up to hinkley and talked to people, and read background material on the fire. And it dawned on me at some point, as I was casting about for some sort of maybe historical fiction to do, that uh, maybe Sherlock Holmes in Minnesota, was that possible? And I should add, at that time, uh, I lived in a house in St. Paul, which was on Delaware Avenue, but it was a corner house and the other street that it overlooked on the west side of St. Paul was Baker Street <laughs> so, <laughs> by, by one of those odd little twists of fate. And so I thought, well, I'm, on, I'm overlooking Baker Street. So at, at some point, I had the idea, maybe I could bring Sherlock Holmes to Minnesota. And then I started doing some research into the canon, which is the, the 56 stories and, and four novels that Conan Doyle wrote about Sherlock Holmes and see, you know, time-wise, does this work? It turns out that it did. Uh, Holmes, in 1894, was just returning from what was called the Great Hiatus, where he had had his duel to the death with Professor Moriarty at Reichenbach Falls, and then he had gone on the lam for three years because, basically, uh, Doyle wanted to kill him off. Uh, And then he got, he got, um, Doyle decided, well, I I guess I gotta do some more Holmes stuff, everybody's demanding it. So he came back to life uh, in a story called The Adventure of the Empty House, which occurred uh, late uh, late summer, early fall of 1894, before the Hinkley, uh, or several months before the Hinkley fire had taken place. So I decided, hey, he's he's available. He's not doing anything else uh, in September of 1894. And so one thing led to another. And I eventually thought, who could bring someone like Sherlock Holmes, the great detective well-known worldwide, who could who had the clout to get him to Minnesota to investigate something? And of course, James J. Hill came to mind immediately. He had a lot of um, friends in England. He had financial interests in England, so things went from there. And I had uh, Hill send out an agent to offer Holmes a bunch of money to come to Minnesota and investigate the, the supposed uh, source of the Hinckley fire, which was actually that it had been set. Which historically, we don't think that's the case. But that was kind of the premise, and then. Um, Managed to sell that book to Viking Penguin and then um, did a few more and a few more after that and developed the Rafferty character and I'm still at it. I'll have a new series of um, three novellas out uh, in September called uh, Mysterious Tales of Old St. Paul and they all feature Shadwell Rafferty, not Holmes and then I'm now working on uh, a sequel to be called, you'll you'll love this, Mysterious Tales of Old Minneapolis. (laughs) And uh, I have two of those done, including one which I'm really fond of, uh, Oscar Wilde solving a murder in Minneapolis in 1882 when he was here on a lecture tour. And um, so um, I'm, that one I hope will be out in 2025. Uh, I decided that writing novellas, thirty thousand plus word novellas, is kind of fun, something a little different. So I'm I'm doing more stories of a of a bit of a shorter than the novel length, but still you know, very substantial uh, stories, much longer than short stories.
1: Would you tell us a bit about your character, Shadwell Rafferty, and his crime-solving methods?
0: Yeah, well, Rafferty was introduced in my second uh, of the Holmes books, Sherlock Holmes and the Ice Palace Murders, as um, Holmes comes to investigate this case of a severed head found in the Ice Palace in the 1896 Winter Carnival in St. Paul. And again, it's through uh, Hill that he, he ends up, he had been in Chicago at the time on something or other, and uh, ends up with Watson in Minnesota. And they, that's where they meet Rafferty, who owns uh, a saloon, like my grandfather did, uh, but in the Ryan Hotel in St. Paul. It's, the, it's like the great saloon in the city, and he's this huge bear of a man with a very checkered past, colorful history, Civil War veteran, all of that. And so he becomes um, sort of, he's more emotional and outgoing, more of a physical customer than than Holmes is, uh, you know, big mountain of a man that no one wants to mess with, but very, very smart, a little more intuitive than Holmes. And so they become kind of at first rivals in investigating this case, but they come to appreciate each other and become sort of uh, informal partners as they investigate the Ice Palace uh, murders. And then I introduce Rafferty and appears in all the subsequent, uh, full novels with Holmes. Uh, and as time has gone on, I've given more attention to Rafferty than, than Holmes. Uh, so the later stories tend to be more, more Rafferty than, than Holmes. All oh, he's, he's in some of them, but like the, the new series, uh, there is no Holmes and I don't really have any more at this point, at least. Uh, and I'm not young anymore. I don't have any more intentions to probably do any more Holmes stories, but there may be some more, Rafferty stories. We'll see. Uh, he's not Rafferty is not in the not in the Minneapolis stories either because he's a Saint Paul guy. I, I can't send him to Minneapolis. So, <laughs> uh, although he does make a brief appearance in one of the stories, but I actually have three different but interrelated detectives uh, that are not not detectives per se, but sort of private citizens who solve crimes. Uh, and in one case, of course, Oscar Wilde um, in the new stories. So, so I'm trying to branch out. You can get into the. The rut of doing the same story, which is what you know the series stories are—you uh, just do, do, do. You have your detective, whatever, and you just you know do an endless series of, of stories, which is, I think, what a lot of readers probably like, and that's why they, they buy the books. But I, I, um, I'm just trying to do something that's a little bit different, but still in the mystery format. In my old age, put that way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> your expertise in the history of these buildings, your background gives you such a great foundation, a great perspective to create historical fiction that feels real. You you literally recreate Minnesota at the turn of the 20th century.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's part of what led to my appeal to do things that way. And I deliberately kept pretty much everything in Minnesota, which probably doesn't do well for my national readership, but uh, I think of myself as a very regional writer. I'm not a big time best selling author, so I just enjoy writing stories in, in settings that I'm that I know something about, uh, and so that's that's what I've been doing. The uh, the Oscar Wilde story is is all set at the Old Nicollet House Hotel, which was the predecessor of the Pick which is now gone as well, but um, all set in 18. 18- 82, when uh, Wilde was here on his uh, American lecture tour as the apostle of good taste and all that stuff. <laughs> sure. He's, he's full of witty things to say, of course, which was half the fun is making up quotes for Oscar Wilde. I'm not sure I'm up to it, but I tried to make up a few more to add to his, uh, his list of witty, witty things to say. Uh,
1: a, a young Winston Churchill spoke in St. Paul. Uh, I believe it was in 1900, 1901. Uh, somewhere in there, he could be a character for, for a future yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, he was here uh, giving a talk, I believe, at the, um, uh, among other places, at uh, one of the big churches in in Saint Paul. Um, that's now gone. Uh, he was on a lecture tour, and that was a, a fairly common thing in the nineteenth, late nineteenth, early twentieth century. Still is today, obviously, of uh, people traveling around and. I guess David Sedaris is maybe the, <laughs> the best example now of a traveling lecturer uh, uh, that draws big crowds. But um, uh, yeah, so uh, it's, 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 it's been fun to, to kind of bring back some people from the past and put them into situations where they can uh, solve crimes.
1: Yeah. There are a lot of passionate Sherlock Holmes fans out there, I'm guessing, what is the feedback you get about the way you portray him?
0: Well, you know, it, it's, there, there's a huge secondary literature uh, about Holmes, uh, pastiche literature. I mean, all sorts of writers have had at Holmes going back almost to the time uh, that he was created. Uh, and so I'm just part of a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sub-genre of, of, its own subgenre of, of mystery literature. Um, there are absolute purists out there who don't like any, anything, uh, that anybody does that isn't original. And, and they will, you know, say so if they review your book, there are the people who, uh, enjoy the pastiches and if it's well done, they like it. And, and most of my pastiches have gotten pretty good reviews from readers. Um, usually quite good. Uh, but yeah, there are always people, you know, you can, you can look on, uh, like Amazon, where you have all the different people writing in. and There'll be one review that says, Larry Millette does a wonderful job of capturing the tone and voice of Sherlock Holmes. And then one right below will say, uh, this doesn't sound at all like Sherlock Holmes. This is reading, you know. So, it, you know, you just have to kind of go with the flow. Uh, but, but but by and large, I've, I've had a lot of fun. The uh, University of Minnesota Sherlock Holmes collection, which is the largest in the world, Tim Johnson there has been a big supporter of my work, and the Norwegian Explorers, which is one of the oldest Sherlockian groups in the country, uh, has have also been uh, supporters of my work. So uh, I'm ha- I'm happy with that.
1: Ah, that, that's great. So I will put a link to your website in the show notes, com, and that... Yep, uh,
0: just to uh, add one thing of interest here, I'm in the process of building up uh, a blog on my website, and there's a blog page that's indicated if you go to the website. and I'm starting to post um, little historic pieces about downtown buildings and places in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Uh, I have a huge, huge pile of these things uh, <laughs> I'm trying to unload before I die. So right now I think I have like eight or nine little thousand word type of stories on the blog, and eventually, I hope to have a hundred or more um that will i think readers will find to be kind of fun i haven't done really any advertising of the blog because it's i'm still working on some format issues and you probably know once once i move into the <laughs> into the, the formatting world of computer dumb and and uh websites and all that i'm kind of lost so i've got a guy who's trying to help me out uh, see if i can get these into the form i like and then um hopefully i'll build a String out a whole bunch of them here um, for the next month or two, and readers will have a lot of um, interesting stuff to look at if they're interested in Twin Cities history for St. Paul, and Minneapolis.
1: Very cool. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on. This has been so great.
0: Yeah, nice, uh, nice talking with you. I just actually ordered a copy of your uh, book on Doc Ames. I meant, I thought I had a copy of it. I thought I had ordered that when it came out, but it didn't because I, I, you know, his house was in one of my books. Uh, Once there were castles. And I uh, knew a little bit about um, his history, so I'll be looking forward to reading that.
1: Yeah, I, I relied on your book, Lost Twin Cities, when writing mine. Specifically, you know the, the the stuff about old City Hall.
0: Well, yeah, the house, of course, was right, basically, well, pretty close to where that plaza is uh, in front of the Viking Stadium. So uh, Doc Ames had his had uh, <laughs> his day. He was quite an interesting character. Uh, I'm sure he and Minaj might have had a, a lot of fun together if they had. Yeah. <laughs> i know they ever met but anyway so yeah i look forward to reading that and um, yeah good luck with this and um, fun talking to you
1: again i've been speaking to larry mallette he is the author of metropolitan dreams the scandalous rise and stunning fall of a minneapolis masterpiece This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Until next time.